This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. As if it hasn't been tough enough for the restaurants and other food service and hospitality businesses that contribute so much to making our neighborhoods what they are, indoor dining has been temporarily banned in Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa, and so they're trying to survive on takeout, and the Premier has their backs calling out food delivery services and their sometimes exorbitant fees and commissions. Libby talked to Joseph Nguyen of Tam Vietnamese Street Food and Cafe, Donna Dewar, co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen in Liberty Village, and Tony Ellenis, president and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant Hotel and Motel Association. We appreciate and applaud uh, Premier Ford's call for the uh, food delivery fee reductions, but much needs to be done here. Uh, we need a permanent solution. The delivery fees are outrageous, especially during this crisis that has brought not only financial, but emotional, emotional concerns to those operating it. Let's begin with Donna. I mean, do you accept those arguments from Uber Eats? Well, you know, Libby, this reminds me very much of the credit card processing fees issues that restaurant operators have faced for many years as well. You have... Um, you know, the, the uh, credit card company is taking money from the consumer as well as the merchant. And, you know, Uber is positioned in that they bring this great marketing platform to the forefront. Uh, it really depends on the scalability of the users in terms of, of the merchant. So for an independent operator, we probably don't get that kind of exposure that uh, multi-unit operations would get. And as to Tony's point, it's a very hefty price to pay when we operate usually around a 5% margin. <laughs> People fall off their chair when I tell them that. But but that, in fact, is the how, how narrow the margin is in the industry. If you're making 5% margin, how do you pay 30% of an order to a delivery service? That, that puts you in the hole, according to uh, the, the math that I know, Joseph Nguyen. With that math in mind, it, you see some of the, the food that we put out it's you're already making only about like 60% back on the actual profit of the actual order. And then for Uber to take about 30% um, other businesses to take about like the same, uh, maybe like 20 ish percent, you're left with barely anything off of your, your profits. And then you're lucky if you're even getting that 5% profit margin at the end of the day. Restaurants are a, such a significant piece of the community, and, and I think Libby, you stated that at the top of the conversation. We donate uh, to all kinds of events, fundraisers. We're the ones that get the first call when the little league guys are running a tournament, or uh, you know something in the neighborhood is happening. We we employ you know hundreds of thousands of, of young people uh, and new Canadians across the country, north, south, east, west. Joseph Nguyen. Yeah, I just want to make one point clear, is that um, 
when I signed up for Uber, yes, I was very well aware of the prices I was paying, and I was totally fine with it. I think that now that there's a pandemic, that completely changes the field, and that a lot of restaurants are depending on that takeout now, and they're depending on delivery drivers that they they have to work with. So in the beginning, paying that 30% for the little boost in sales and some some extra promotion, that was fine with me. But when all of a sudden I have to change the whole dynamic and depend on Uber to get a lot of my sales out, and it, I, I do push for people to come into the restaurant, but I also understand that it's very difficult for a lot of people to leave their house. And I, I don't want to put that pressure on people, even though it, it helps my business to pressure people to go outside and get takeout when it's not necessarily the safest thing for them to do. And you have to depend on uh, companies like Uber. And I think that's where it's the most important to realize that. And as a company, they should understand that as well. Joseph Nguyen of Tam Vietnamese Street Food and Cafe, Donna Dewar, co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen in Liberty Village, and Tony Ellenis, president and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant Hotel and Motel Association. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. We've not only heard from businesses that are in jeopardy because of the pandemic, overcrowding on the TTC is a worry for many, as Libby found out in speaking with Toronto City Councillor and TTC Board Member Shelley Carroll, Sheila Pisey-Allen, Executive Director of TTC Riders, and TTC Spokesperson Stuart Green, after a commuter's tweet of a picture of a crowded bus with the obvious question, how are we supposed to socially distance here? and the TTC response that maybe they should get off and grab the next one. We acknowledge that was a poorly worded uh, response, um, and we've reminded our uh, our customer service staff about, you know, the, the fact that we have a lot of people on buses right now who are feeling, uh, you know, they're, they're feeling uncomfortable when, when the bus starts to, to fill up. So um, we need to be a bit more sensitive in how we respond, and, and, and you know, we apologize for the way that came across because it, it's, it wasn't meant to be insensitive. But um, it, it also sort of go, goes back to a point in time where, uh, you know, as, as early as, as late, spring we were you know we had been messaging to people that you know the reality is that public transit is is planned in such a way uh, that it's meant to be busy it's meant to be crowded and that physical distancing on a bus would not always be possible at all times simply because that would mean limiting bus rides to six people um, and we don't have enough buses to do that so um, you know part of our approach has been of course to to you know require mask wearing to clean our vehicles many times a day to give away masks to have hand sanitizers available, all those things that make the system safer. Okay, well, uh, I'm going to bring in some other voices on this. We've got Shelley Carroll, who is on the TTC board, of course, the councillor for Don Valley North, and Sheila Pisey-Allen, who is the executive director of the TTC Riders Association. Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, was it just somebody, you know, misspeaking? Well, no. Uh, it, what it sounded like to me, and the reason that I, I took the extraordinary step for a commissioner of responding to that and, and letting them know my, my outrage at that response, is that, that that it didn't square with what we were told in the commission less than a month ago. 
uh, I moved a motion less than a month ago saying, let's add back any of the laid off operators that are still out there. There are 170 TTC staff members still laid off because we were given a report that told us that, that uh, the bus system is not less than half full. It was, in fact, at that time, 54% full as school was returning. And, and so it's not less than half full. It's getting more and more full. And so I said, let's return the workers because we've got to, to be able to guarantee safe distancing. No one said to me at that time, no, we're, we're making a decision today not to. There will be no more safe distancing. That's not what they said. They said, you know, it is getting full and you're right. We have to ask the province for operating funding. And that's very key. The reason we're in this situation is the TTC does not get the kind of day-to-day operating funding from other orders of government that other major cities get. But they didn't say to us, as of today, there's no more social distancing. And that's what this response seemed to indicate. Uh, Yes, uh, I think it took a lot of people by surprise. Sheila Pizzi-Allen, what's your reaction? I think it's um, important to point out that the TTC is not currently running 100% of service. It's not running as much service as it could. And as uh, Commissioner Carroll pointed out, last month, the TTC board and councillors Brad Bradford, Jennifer McKelvey, Denzel Min and Wong voted against bringing back full service. And transit, this is not new. Transit riders have been calling for more service, sharing crowding photos for months. And so what's really insensitive is not just a tweet saying you should wait for the next bus. It's the lack of action from the mayor and from city councillors to do as much as possible um, and bring back as much service as possible. And the other thing that TTC could be doing right now is to fast track more bus lanes so that our buses can move more quickly and serve more riders. And we'd also like to see more mass distributed. People have been uh, for months raising the issue that people are not complying with the mask rule and people don't don't feel safe. We really are right now only asking those other orders of government. We're asking for the same thing any other major city in North America has, and that is support from the other orders of government for the day-to-day operation of a safe system. Toronto City Councilor and TTC Board Member Shelley Carroll, Sheila Pizzi-Allen, Executive Director of the group TTC Riders, and TTC spokesperson Stuart Green. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, having trouble getting a flu shot? You're not alone. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. So, is there or isn't there a shortage of seasonal flu vaccine? The health minister says there is not. It's just that the first shipments were sent to high-risk settings like nursing homes. But people clamoring to get those shots early are telling a different tale. Long lineups, waiting lists, and being turned away. Libby spoke with John Papasturgio, a pharmacist with Shoppers Drug Mart, Dr. Elisa Naiman, a family physician with a medical station clinic in Toronto, and Toronto family physician, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Well, at our place, it's kind of interesting. We were sent 85 doses of high dose for two doctors. So what do you think? That was taken. All doses were spoken for within two days. 
within two days. And how many patients? Leave us now with high dose. Answer, zero. We have no high dose left, which is very disturbing. So we called Toronto Public Health to try to, you know, get some more vaccine. And unfortunately, we were advised that we cannot even reorder it until October 19th and not pick it up. And that's us going there until October the 29th, which I think is... Isn't it? suboptimal to say the least. Uh-huh. And so you had 85 doses. How many patients over 65? Oh, my gosh. Hundreds. Okay. Hundreds. I mean, it's, it's I, I don't know the exact number, probably around 300. 500, easy. 500, easy. Dr. Elisa Naiman, what was your experience? So uh, we, so I have a practice of uh, seven doctors, and we have about 7,000 patients. And we received roughly 350 regular doses and about 150 over 65 doses. And probably we're probably in line um, with probably having probably about 20, 25% of our, of our patients are probably over the age of 65. And so uh, what happened? Well, so... It's actually, it's been very, very frustrating because we were initially, Toronto Public Health informed us that we were all going to be getting a shipment last week. And I guess we're one of the fortunate clinics in that we did get a shipment on our regular day last Wednesday. And originally they had said that you could reorder as of the week of the 12th, which was this week. And then last Friday afternoon, we got a communication from Toronto Public Health saying that they're having problems with distribution and that you can't reorder at all until the 19th. Um, and we've begged, we've actually begged and said, can you please just give us a little bit? We'll come and pick it up. And they're like, we're going to lose our job. You can't come and get it. We can't make an exception for you. So we're basically in a holding pattern until Monday to try to order more. And we have patients calling being very, very upset because they can't get their vaccine. And I think it, and, and this is really, it's exactly what you said that usually we're early in the, in the, like to vaccinate. Usually we don't vaccinate till the last two weeks of October, but there's just so much demand because people have been told that you need to get a flu shot and the government hasn't been able to properly distribute it in a efficient way. Okay, let's bring in John Pepistergio. And, and John, one of the things my local pharmacy told me when they offered to put me on a waiting list, they said, you know what? Part of the problem is that we don't even know how much we're going to get. So how is your supply managed? Uh, the way they distributed uh, flu shots to pharmacies was the first order was about 40% of what you did all of last year. Uh it came in a little bit short of that, but the reality is the volume has been much, much higher. Uh, last year, you know, during the first week of the campaign, I was probably doing 50 flu shots a day in my busy store. I'm doing about 300 a day now. So wow. you, can, you can see how that, that traffic has been amplified dramatically. And uh, I think what we're seeing now is the initial tidal wave of demand. I think it's going to die off, and we generally see that uh, year over year. So I think we're, you know, with a 30% increase in the, and the overall supply, I think, will be okay. And just to add to Iris's point, Iris, I'm living proof of that. I know we spoke about it. You know, I had uh, I had a very serious uh, illness back in February where, you know, they thought it was COVID, kept testing negative. It ended up being influenza B, probably as a secondary infection. And uh, um, I think I was lucky to be vaccinated because I was able to recover. But it was a pretty scary period of time. And now I have COVID antibodies. So I wow. probably... I probably had COVID followed by an influenza secondary infection, and that's popping up in the literature where, uh, you know, people tend to start to recover and then uh, influenza creeps in. So uh, very important to get vaccinated, 
you know, if you can't get it this week, you can't get it next week, we'll get you vaccinated. But I think uh, I think we're going to be OK with respect to the overall supply. Pharmacist John Papasturgio and Toronto family physicians, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel and Dr. Elisa Naiman. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Winter's coming, and guess what? Your electricity bills are going up next month. At the beginning of the pandemic, the government put everyone on a flat price, recognizing that people were spending a lot more time at home while being strapped for cash. They raised that flat price once. Now the system is going back to regular pricing, which allows consumers to choose between time of use and tiered pricing. TOU rewards customers for using electricity off-peak hours. That system uses three different rates. Tiered pricing rewards those who use less on the first 1,000 kilowatt hours. Joining Libby to talk about the politics and to help you figure out what works best for you were Peter Tabbins, Ontario NDP energy critic, Paul Accioni, a senior management consultant in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry, and Parker Gallant, a retired banker who analyzes Ontario's energy sector and is the author of the blog Energy Perspectives. It's taking us in the wrong direction. People are having a very tough time. We've got a pandemic going on. Uh, Ford should have realized that. He should have used the power he had to stop a further increase. As you'll remember, he promised to reduce hydro bills by 12% during the last election campaign. I remember. He hasn't done that. Uh, no, they've gone. They're they're going in the wrong direction, as you say. Have uh, Have you been hearing from constituents about this, Peter? Oh yes, oh yes. And well, people are, are are cash strapped, right? I mean, a lot of people find their work is uncertain. Uh, they're worried about losing their jobs, uh, and they have mortgages and rent and food to pay for. So uh, they just don't feel that it's right that they're being pressed even further. Okay, let's uh, bring in our other guests. Uh, Parker, what's your reaction to this increase? Is is it something that the system needs? No, uh, that's my view as well. I, I mean, um, a couple of years ago, I think, uh, the Ontario Energy Board did a study on energy poverty and found there was over well over 500,000 households living in energy poverty. So I'm saying that's a few years ago. It was around, I think, 2015 or thereabouts. Um, and uh, the COVID-19 has, has created more, I would guess. I haven't done a survey and, and I haven't seen one. But uh, my view is that uh, we probably have seen an increase in energy poverty. So with winter coming, this is a really bad time, as far as I'm concerned, to raise those rates. And even though, as you pointed out, the rate is, is nominal, I mean, it, it, it will amount to, I think, uh, about Two and two fifty or something like that a, a, a month, which over a year will you know add another thirty dollars to your bill. So thirty dollars you won't have to spend on other things you might need. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I felt that Ford could have done is said, okay, uh, we're going to really drop the rates for the first seven hundred kilowatt hours of, of usage, and we'll raise the rates for people that can afford them, which is someone you know that's going to you know uh, consume. I don't know, 1,500 uh, kilowatt hours monthly. Uh, Paul, what is your view? Well, you know, there's there's the price that it costs to make the electricity, and then there's the question of uh, who can afford that cost and what do we do about the ones that don't uh, have the money to pay for that, that basic cost of electricity. 
we we can't forget that there there are three rebate programs that the government has initiated over the past several years. There's the COVID relief. There's the uh, low low, um, low uh, income uh, um, emergency assistance program, and there's the ongoing Ontario electrical support program. Uh, so people that are on relatively low income, uh, two people below twenty nine, twenty eight, twenty nine thousand, and uh, four people below thirty nine, roughly thirty nine or forty thousand dollars a year, can can get uh, ongoing relief on their bill. For example, the OESP program gives you a forty five dollar per month reduction in in your total cost. That's both the commodity, which is the electricity and the distribution and transmission costs, which people forget about, is about 40% of the total bill. So, so there, there, are, there are programs for people that are in trouble, and they should tap them. They have to apply, unfortunately, for all these programs. So, so they, need, they need to know if they're in the low-income low category and then go out there and apply for those rebates. Uh, I know my mom is on a low-fixed uh, pension and uh, she gets $45 a month rebate every month it, it it brings her electricity cost almost to zero yeah my view is that you know as paul suggested you should look at your usage but my view is also that Doug Ford could do something about looking at reducing the the cost for um, you know, the lower level of consumption, up to 700 kilowatt hours. Okay, and Peter? Yeah, as, as long as the government's focused on looking after shareholders and not hydro customers, we're going to see higher prices and it's going to be tough on folks. NDP energy critic Peter Tabins, Paul Accioni, a senior management consultant in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry, and Parker Gallant a retired banker who analyzes Ontario's energy sector and is the author of the blog, Energy Perspectives. I'm Bob Comsick, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Joan in Toronto says people should just pass on food delivery. What I don't understand is why can't people just go pick up the food? You know, I live in a major townhouse complex and I've had more than once I've come out in the morning. And there's been a food delivery at my door. I've never ordered take. I've never. I've gone to pick up takeout many times, but never have I ordered it. And I took one look at the bill that one night. I mean, they could have walked down the block and got it for the same meal for half the price. So people are just throwing that money away for this Uber Eats. I mean, it's just that somebody's got to do something about it. It's absolutely ridiculous. They don't even knock on the door. I see in my complex because there's a lot of young people. Uber Eats is there every single night. Ken in Toronto gave the side of an Uber delivery driver. I, I have to make a statement. You've got some greedy restauranters on the line with you. They were. It was explained to them before they signed up for Uber or the past Foodora or any of the services that the business they're getting is not included in their current overhead, which is covered by their current business. This is extra business probably outside their delivery zones that they wouldn't have had anyways, for the most part. And 
I have run into several accountants who own restaurants, and they have said to me, we agree with Uber and the way it's set up. If you take 30 for your marketing efforts and paying the drivers and for all the extras, and we keep the amount of money that's left over after our food costs, we are making 24%. Dave called to say in Brampton, they're not just only looking at higher hydro rates. In Brampton, we're lucky. We're going to get nailed with two now. Well, two costs. First of all, you're saying electricity is going up. We just got nailed with what they call a storm sewage charge. Any rain that hits your roof, now we're paying for it. It's costing me $120 a year, $30 every three months. So what do you, what do you think of this electricity increase? Uh, really, I need that like I need a hole in the head. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Lucky Diane in Burlington, who had no trouble getting her flu shot. Two weeks ago here, my family doctor had a drive-through for people over 65, and uh, both dosages were available, depended on what you wanted, and it was so successful and I'm, I'm not sure if he has planned another drive-through uh, for younger people or not, but knowing him, he probably is going to do it again. They had the two, there was a nurse who came out uh, and helped us. Uh, all you had to do was roll down your, your window in the car and get your flu shot. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackatzoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby, and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsey. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.